Hello everyone, welcome to Happiness in Humans. I am Susan Ferber and I will be guest hosting the next two episodes of this podcast. Today I am interviewing the usual interviewer, Matt Phelan, author of Freedom to be Happy. I worked with Matt as an editor on this book and it genuinely has been one of the highlights of my career as an editor because the book is quite frankly fantastic as we'll be getting into in the next few minutes. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, hey, hey Susan. Um, I'll tell you what, it's so much more relaxing not being the host. I feel so relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you feel now, but hope you got to remember all the questions. It's so much more straight. I feel I feel the most chilled I've been on this podcast. So, Excellent. Um, so feel free to take over as full-time host. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I'm Matt. Matt Phelan. Um, first and foremost, I'm a dad. That's what I identify as, as my main as my main role in life. Um, I grew I grew up on a farm. So, um, like I say in the book, I worked with animals before I did with human beings. Um, that was the sort of fir my first half of my career. Then I um, had a, a a small bit of a normal working career, and then I started a digital marketing agency agency called Four Ps. Uh, we built that up based on culture. We sold that business, um, but whilst we were scaling that business, we caught we built something called the Happiness Index, um, which is a piece of technology. Which is the business that I co-founded uh, with two of my friends, Tony and Chris. So yeah, that's that's me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today on your own podcast. Um, let's get into the book, if we will. So everybody, the book is called Freedom to be Happy, A Business Case for Happiness. Is that correct, Matt? That is, that is. That is, that is, that is as, as editor, there's, there's no, that's, you, you've, you've helped us get to that point. Excellent. So I guess, Matt, let's just start by talking about some broader topics around this. And I wanted to know, what makes you happy? Uh, good question. Um, as I, yeah, it's funny because obviously I ask people this all the time, but now I've had to think about it myself. Um, it's th that's where the title of the book came from, Freedom to be Happy. For me, it's freedom. So in all my relationships, I need to feel free. Um, and actually, Susan, I was thinking before we came on, because I knew you were interviewing me, one of the reasons I knew that one of the re reasons I picked you as the editor after speaking to some other editors is I felt like, right, Susan is going to give me all the experience and knowledge that I need to get a book done when I have no idea what I'm doing. But I also felt that you would give me freedom within that within that working relationship so it's just everything it's like at work it's at home it's with my friends it's with my family like i need to feel like i'm i'm coming into any relationship willingly and that i can leave at any point <laughs> and so freedom i don't know why freedom is so important to me but it is the number one thing that i just need to feel and if i feel that in it in my walk of life then i do all my best work and be my, the best dad i can be and all that kind of stuff Wow. Okay. That, that's great. Um, I suppose it would be really interesting to talk about the process of writing a book and it is your first book. So how did you find going from implementing these, these strategies to then putting it down on paper and your book as well is um, in some way part memoir, part autobiography where you go into personal details too. How did you find collating all of that information and telling your story? 
Well, yeah. I mean, as you know, Susan, we wrote it in sort of like record time because it was like a lo- it's like a lockdown book, wasn't it? I'm sure in years to come, that we, books known as lockdown books. Um, but it was I've been sort of taking notes for the last 10 years or so. It's, it's, it's actually Chris and I's 13 year anniversary of when we started our first business this week. Oh, wow. OK. Wow. So, so for 13 years, actually, my phone has just always I've, I've always kept um, this. The, the notes on my iPhone and they've just always updated from one phone to another and I've always kept notes. So I've actually got notes from all the meetings and everything that I've had. So that was the basis of it. Um, and I've always written articles. So I started writing articles on culture and stuff. So I had the basis of everything. So it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. And then I had all the data from the happiness index. All I needed to do was interview all the experts and the scientists in the different areas on the on this podcast then once i had that um and it's it's supposed to go it was good to go on to the inside l white l whitehead who used to work for me in content uh helped me uh draft up like the podcast interviews so then i could take like copy and paste the bits out of conversation that i thought were interesting so um although we did it in record time and the other bit i suppose to tell people is that i told the audience and the customers of the book that it was the date that when it was going to be released before I finished it. That was um, that great. So I don't know if that's normal, but I need a deadline to get stuff done. So I created, I forced a deadline on myself, which I don't know how stressful that was for you, Susan. But, um, that helped me. Yes, it was. It was good though because you were you were focused on that. So um, just to explain the process for everybody, Matt had set a deadline for himself, which he had contacted me, I believe it was sort of early September, and he yeah. said the book is coming out in November. And I said, oh, right, where's the manuscript? He said, well, I haven't written it yet. Um, <laughs> but the you were really focused on how and when you were going to do that. And then we were able to plan a schedule from that. So in that way, it wasn't that stressful because you knew what you were doing. And again, I guess that goes back to what you were talking about with freedom. And if you set those, if you have some sort of ideas of boundaries and, you know, um, a common communication about what you're doing, then you can be quite free in going about how you get to the end point. Um, And that's been certainly one of the really great things about working with you as an editor is, you know, that there is this this flexibility around how we even get things done. Um, it It is tied to, you know, a theoretical schedule but not, uh, you know, constant deadlines. Good. So you've, you've not had to go into therapy over it then, Susan? I don't know. My only point to add is it that, that for me, it just felt like pulling a, a puzzle together. So I I had all the bits. When I called you, I had all the bits and I felt like I need a, I need a chip, someone who's good at puzzles now to help me bring it together. And it's just really good. For those that have not written a book or interested in it and how the editor role really i found it really worked is you would just read bits and say matt that i just no idea what you're trying to say there and then you just go back and have a look at it because you think in your head it makes sense but having yeah. someone to do that and talk to you about it helps you get it out of your head and and, and make let let it make more sense i think no that that's that's really useful for people to understand when they when they write a book i believe um, I suppose, you know, the big question is, why did you write the book? Why did you write Freedom to Be Happy? Why is this the story you wanted to tell? Yeah, oh, what, what a great question. Um, I think it was a lot of people, because I work at the Happiness Index and I have this job 
made up job title, which is head of global happiness, which just to point out is tongue in cheek. Some people think it's serious. They think that I've appointed myself like, like a UN position or something. It's, I'm taking the, the, the mick out of myself. Um, a lot of people contact me that, that are unhappy in their workplace. Um, and, it, and it can be HR directors. Sometimes it's even CEOs themselves. They're unhappy in their own role and their own work. And they say, I just don't have, I can't articulate this business case. Like I can't get people to understand why happiness is important in a business respect. So I felt like I could bring together the three elements, which is I felt like I could bring together uh, the data um, the frontline practitioners um, and also the scientists into one place. So I felt like this is just a little book that anyone who wants to make the business case for happiness can do. Does that make sense, Susan? That does. I think that that one of the things I really love about the book is how influenced it is by data, how data, data heavy it is with case studies. And even when we were in initial conversations about the book, that's what struck me as unique. Uh, and to readers who haven't read it yet, I think they will encounter that because it, you go away then with concrete data, which really helps you to conceptualize why this is, you know, the business case for happiness rather than a perhaps manifesto about living in a better world. I mean, it is that as well, but it yeah. comes at it from this very data-driven place. Uh, and I suppose, you know, onto that really in a way, you know, you give you give the business case for happiness. That is your subtitle. Yeah. Uh, how do you? I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel that readers or leaders can take your book and perhaps implement it into strategy? I think the most important thing is it's like anything in life, isn't it? Is that those people want to do it? Because if I if I reflect on the the ten years that we were in the digital business and digital okay. transformation broadly, I, I was trying to get people to understand that if they don't digitally transform their business, they could be in trouble. Um, and obviously, the outcome of that was great because that might have been fees for my agency, my company. Right. But ultimately, I was thinking I didn't know the pandemic was going to happen, but that's shown that up, hasn't it? Like if you can't sell digitally now, you're in trouble as a business. So mm -hmm. the pandemic has speeded up this like digital transformation end game. But when I had my sabbatical um, in the, I, I only remember time in football time. So it was the 2018 World Cup. When I had, when that World Cup was going on was when I had my sabbatical. I reflected on, on my, my 10 years and I realized that I'd never changed anyone's minds. Everyone that wanted to transform their business came along and we worked on it together. Um, and everyone um, that didn't, didn't. And right. I realised that I probably wasted half to 50% to 33% to of my time trying to convince people they should transform their businesses. And I looked back and I thought, I reckon I've wasted a third of my time in a 10-year period, which is like three years of my time. And then, and then what I've realized with, with the business case for happiness and this kind of stuff, which is if people are really anti it, which there are people that are, I'm just chilled. I'm like, no worries. We'll see you down the road. <laughs> it's like, right. it's, problem. like it's, the, it's all there. It's all there if you want to see it. It's all hidden in plain sight. And, and one thing I've learned from doing the book tour um, is that if you say to someone, um, happy employees equal 
better financial performance in a business. Some people will argue with you. Some people will believe it. Um, but if you flip it round and say, so, and you you got someone's arguing with that the case, and you say, so, okay, do you think unhappy employees perform better? They, they get it straight away because you can imagine it from yourself, can't you? Like, of course, unhappy employees don't perform better. Right. Um, so to answer your question, I don't want to say I don't care, um, but in a way I don't. I'm just more chilled with it. If people want to come on the journey, great. If they don't, it's not a problem. We'll see. We'll see you down the road. No, that 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 makes sense. I suppose one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the structure of freedom to be happy is particularly strong in that you take us on a journey throughout it. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more, Matt, about what one will find in the book? and you know the decision about how to even structure it so you, you sort of take us between personal reflections um a little bit of information about how you founded your companies and then you go into neuroscience and you know quantum working and also talking about the different hormones that one experiences yeah um, i'll start with a very light touch i should say and with a great sense of humor i mean one doesn't really um even it just sort of flies past one and you sort of absorb all the information as it's happening because you're having a great time reading it as well yeah um i suppose again credit to you susan that's obviously what i had to think about a lot about this about how the puzzle comes together and i yeah. always remember when we had that that first meeting and you said to me something like the last thing the world needs is another white guy writing a book about how amazing he is <laughs> that, that sounds like me <laughs> yeah so um I kept that in mind throughout, which is I wanted to introduce who I am because, um, like, obviously, for those that don't know, what one of the other reasons um, Susan is good at is because she loves books herself, um, and she's actually written her own book, which I would uh, recommend checking out. Um, is that uh, you said I need to introduce myself, so I wanted to give that context, and I wanted to give a, a bit of our story around the previous company and something but I read the book by you saying that it focused me on thinking about right, what is the goal of this book so the goal of the book was to arm people to build to get the data and information to bring it into the boardroom and into meetings so context is obviously important so I set that um, but I didn't want to be like this I didn't want this to be an ego fest which is just like oh yeah we did this amazing thing for 10 years and we were brilliant and you should do it like that it's not supposed to be like that like we did a load of good stuff at Four Piece, but we lo did loads of wrong stuff as well. Um, yeah. And uh, there's not many, if you if you look at those books that you were talking about, I don't think enough of them discuss what went wrong um, because- I agree with you there. When you look back, it's easy to go, oh, then we did this and then that happened. And it's, um, um, so sorry to mention your book twice, Susan, but obviously the main character in your book cracks me up because she always talks about how she's not sure whether her memory is correct or not and whether events happened in the order that they happened. Right. She has this imaginary narrative in her head, doesn't she? And yes. it's like, she, but she's, but the reason she's a likable character is because she's aware of that. So she's oh, aware. Likeable. What's that? I'm glad you think she's likable. Yeah, because she's human, isn't she? She is, she's, she's, you get to know all of her, don't you? But she's self-aware of the fact that she's not sure whether the historical timeline was correct or not. She says that to herself in the book, and I love that, because that's the same with business books, isn't it? 
yes it's written and you read it and you think wow like that was i mean that was a smooth journey <laughs> and they'll put the odd story in there but you think geez this does i don't know it just so i was very conscious of getting that bit done in a zippy quickie way uh quickie yeah. that's not even a word um in a zippy way that had pace so that people didn't get bored because again like, i like sports so i read a lot of sports books okay. and sometimes you're like you're, you're like seven chapters in of them going to school and stuff and you're thinking the reason i'm reading this person's book is because i saw you play football when you're in your 20s and that's, yeah. what, that's what you want to get to um get bogged down in the i always call it in biographies or autobiographies how you have to go into the grandparents lineage and you yeah. think i don't <laughs> care that your grandfather once met this famous person and that made you famous you know two yeah. decades later um let's let's just get to what i'm reading the book for um, yeah. But equally, I think it is important uh, to understand where you've come from as an author and your particular experiences. So growing up on a farm was, you know, very influential on you, obviously. But it's great to understand as a reader how those influences have impacted you. And yeah. I remember that from our first meeting, uh, what, how you started this podcast, actually, by saying you understood animals before you understood humans and yeah. how that has shaped your worldview. And I think, you know, shaped your founding of, um, you know, of your business as well. Yeah. And just to clarify, I don't, I definitely don't understand animals and I definitely don't understand humans, but I am work. I have worked with both and I am trying to understand them more. But um, I know that isn't what you meant, but I did just want to, um, I, did want, <laughs> I did want to correct my uh, people's opinion on that. I definitely don't understand all of this, but, but thank you for assuming that I do, Susan. <laughs> um always an expert but always learning um yes yeah, yeah, yeah. that leads us on to a nice question of you know what are your influences or you know who are your influences so perhaps you know what other business books have influenced you what mentors have influenced you or you know what circumstances have influenced you yeah i mean yeah i mean coming from an immigrant family definitely influenced me like and I think it's why I've resonated like stuff like this happening with Black Lives Matters and all this kind of stuff. That's definitely I felt that like not I can't feel that as a as a white person, but I just anything that feels unfair. That's just that's just that's the thing that really. I suppose it goes back to freedom. It's like the flip side of it. Right. If I if I see bullying or things that are unfair, it just it just that's the thing that really like motivates me or pisses me off to do something or whatever so my own again i don't want to go into the lineage of my great 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 parents and all that kind of stuff but there's so there's so many stories in our family of of how we've been treated badly okay. um, as immigrants and stuff like that like just just to give you an example when like when we started farming in this country um english farmers if they sold us any kind of food stock um it, they would put um human excrement in it because um because we were irish farmers oh, so wow. yeah okay. so uh, it's kind of disappeared now like how how badly irish people were treated in the uk and i'm pleased by that um obviously but and, and irish jokes some people find them funny some people don't but they were just pretty common in the 80s and 90s um with mo most of them portraying irish people as drunk and stupid um irish um within the uk so 
that's obviously stories that you just hear all the time you hear them from your um from your parents from your aunties your uncles so that's like fed into you so i always think like that's always in my head i am all of my grandparents are irish but i was born in england um so i identify as both um i see myself as english but i also see myself as irish but that that my influences are always that like i think that's always deeply rooted that if there's kind of an unfairness or a group has been treated unfair then that sort of motivates me to get involved in that um so yeah i think it's my family is probably probably the answer on that one susan okay no that's that's really, really interesting because I think people don't perceive bullying happening in the workplace uh, oftentimes, and that could be a trigger for unhappiness, yeah. um, but it can be so, you know, insidious, the bullying yeah. and microaggressions. And you do touch on that in your book as well, yeah. which is important to understand. And you also touch on, again, different cultures and how they respond to happiness. Yeah. Um, I suppose what is the what is the most shocking piece of data that you've come across in your in your global understanding of happiness? What have what has taken you by surprise, either in a positive way or perhaps in a negative way? It's, it still surprises me every day, which is if people scroll back on this podcast and go to the Professor Jeremy Dawson NHS. So in in my in Freedom to Be Happy, it's in the it's in the is happiness a fluffy metric chapter? Okay. And it's still Jeremy's research that, and I, I am simplifying his research. You do go and read it yourself. But if there was two hospitals and they were exactly the same and one had unhappier staff, there's more chance of you dying in the one with the unhappier staff. Because most people, when they think of the business case for happiness or happiness, they imagine what their world is like. So if you work in publishing, you imagine other publishers. If you work um, on a construction site, you think of other construction workers generally. But most people don't, you kind of assume and you think, well, someone in a hospital is not going to make a mistake just because they're unhappy. You you kind of put them on a higher pedestal, don't you? But the more you get into the research and you realise that, for example, blocking out emotions at work will impact the accuracy of someone in their task, for me and you, that might be me or you might miss a typo in a document okay whatever i don't know how much you hate typos susan but and that might annoy you non-stop for the weekend but that's recoverable but what if you're a, a nurse um that that is giving someone an injection or whatever mistakes exactly. mistakes happen nhs is one of the biggest employers in the world so um that still shocks me and it still shocks me that people are not aware of it um and even in this report that's just come out on um on racism and ethnic diversity in the uk which has annoyed a lot of people um it it jeremy dawson talks about it in that report that oh right okay so in his report i ask him what what's the most surprising data and he says well there's an association between discrimination um uh, and they're starting to see a link between discrimination and obviously happiness and obviously death rates because if you think of it if you think of it if you think of it back if you're going to work and you're being discriminated against obviously you're going to be unhappier and if you're unhappier that is a, that's that certain emotions are suppressed suppressed so you're making more mistakes at work so suddenly you start to realize these things 
like equality and happiness, they're not separate things. They're the same frigging thing. If someone is bullying you at work, it's going to impact your happiness and therefore your performance. And I think people haven't made that link, perhaps. Um, and that's why, yeah. for me, your book is so important is it's very easy to read it's very simple that case study again was very surprising to me too um and it gives it gives people simple tools and simple questions to ask themselves about how they can improve their workforce because it isn't again we'd all like to live in a world where we could be happy but you know even looking at it from a capitalist point of view if that's what the business wants it will make people more efficient. It will make people better workers, giving better output. So it just makes biz good business sense to yeah. you know, increase people's happiness at work. Um, and I love, I love that about your book, that it has that, that drive behind it. Um, I guess this leads us on to my final question for you, Matt, which is, you know, what do you think the future looks like? Good, good question, Susan. <laughs> um... I think I just exactly like you just said on the links, I just want to keep making the links for people to understand because there's still there's still so many people who don't understand this stuff um, and we're still uncovering more and more data every day. Um, and what we are finding more and more in the neuroscience bit is that business is blocked out. The businesses are very good at telling you how people think but they're not very good at telling you how people feel. And that's, and going back to that, that government report, when I interviewed one of my friends about that report, um, who's a DNI consultant, he said, the reason he's so angry about the report is because it doesn't reflect the living, his living experience of being a black man in the UK. That's what he said. So what I take from that is, is you're not, it's not understanding how people feel. So if you take that horrific murder um, of that poor girl in on Clapham Common, I think it was Sorry, Clapham, yes. yeah, recently, horrific, right? What that what has come out of that for men, which men need to hear, is some of the shocking stuff that women that they know do that they're not aware of. So I didn't know it was a thing that if women were walking back at night, they'll keep their keys on them out, ready to to. Yes. Yeah. So, so I've heard more women talk about that, and women that I'm related to and, and know and love and, and everything. And then you think, geez, that you there's a real lack of aware. I didn't know that. And I think that I'm quite aware of generally normal stuff. But so I didn't understand that lived experience of what it's like um, to be a woman. So. The more data we can bring out on this, on on that on that phrase, uh, lived experience, just creates empathy, doesn't it? Because out of all these things, you get like out of Black Lives Matters, you get people going, well, 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 all lives matter, and then you get, and then when women are saying, I feel scared, you get people yeah. coming out saying, well, 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 all genders matter, and all this kind of stuff, and it's like, I get your point, because even the happiness index, the happiness index vision is freedom to be human. So the whole point is everyone should be treated like a human being. That's the point, right? But if you don't recognize that there is a difference in the lived, ex lived experience, then you're not able to help fix the problem. So, so to answer your question, so I see both sides. I see why people say, if you take out all the, if we just take out everyone, that is just a complete right-wing nutter. Because we're, let's not, we can't include that. And let's say left wing nutters as well. Let's just take out like 
one percent on either side of the spectrum which i don't yeah. even recognize a spectrum even though i've just presented that but if we take out the one percent extremists on both side there are genuine there are there are both people on the side of all these arguments that that have they have good points but the problem is by ignoring it and this could be happiness this could be gender discrimination this could be um people being bullied at work by ignoring it you can't move forward um that's a really important point and that's why and that, i think that's why that the report by the government on uh, has really annoyed people and that's why people get so annoyed when they say oh ge all genders matter and all this kind of stuff it's like of course all genders matter but you have to admit that there is you have to see that there is a difference and that that is impacting people um so i just within the happiness index around the world i just want us to keep connecting the dots up because that's that's um the definition of creativity isn't it is 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 connecting the dots so yes. so i think that i think the happiness index is going to help people visualize culture within businesses and beyond so that, that's what i think is super interesting and i think we've only i've only think we've only scratched the surface i don't think we know even like a percent of this stuff um and that's what they call it duvet flip don't they like what what gets you up in the morning and for me it's just uncovering more and more of this stuff so so people can be be, be themselves and be free yeah that's that's excellent and as i said what is so great about your book is it it poses these questions it brings this awareness and it gives really really good significant case studies and data around these issues to say wake up we need to start doing something uh which you, you talk about how you know it's not people um posit uh feelings as negative that to feel is a negative thing and you you completely deconstruct that which is you know eye-opening and reframes how one even approaches these situations so to those who haven't read the book yet a real treat awaits you and also it, you know great reflection uh, after you've read it too so i hope people do enjoy it and i think it's again one of those books that will not date um and that you can keep going back to again and again and finding what you need to you know take your business forward or your personal life forward perhaps at different times in your life well matt is there anything else you wanted to say uh, about freedom to be happy while we're here today no just that um a lot of people asked me uh, most of the questions i got were around can we get more on the last chapter which was the quantum way yes um, so what i managed to do because what when as you saw in some of the book launches everyone was like oh you're gonna write another book matt are you gonna write a follow-up so in the in a pure quantum way um clive agreed to write the sequel to my book um, <laughs> which is brilliant for me because yeah. i've written uh, the sequel of my book is out and i've not written it um but if you, <laughs> if you manage to re read my book and you think it's not um shit and you think oh, i want to know more clive has now done the scientific case um for 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 the stuff that we introduced like neuroscience um and quantum physics which sounds like mind blown like whoa a book on neuroscience and, and quantum physics but it's really about um how we can have all these individuals that have been the best that best they can be at work and how it can all come together so that's all i just want to leave people with if if 
if you found that interesting, um, have a read of the second book and let us you know your feedback. And, and on my book, just let us know feedback. I'm not, I, I run a feedback company. So even if it's negative, I don't mind. I, I, I'm like anyone, like I'll be like a cringy little bit inside if you send me negative feedback, but I will get over that in about two seconds. And I will generally, I would genuinely read your comments and try and learn from it. So if you've got feedback on the book, please, please send it. And all I want to say is Susan, thanks for being an amazing editor. And if anyone is looking for a freelance editor, um, drop Susan a note because I highly recommend her. Well, thank you very much, Matt. And we'll next be speaking to Clive Highland, who is the author of the second book, The Quantum Way. And I know you've said that he's written the sequel, but I do hope that you two write another book. And I'm sure <laughs> a lot of readers hope the same as well, um, because you have a, a certain a certain sense of humor, which is such a pleasure to read and to work with. So thank you very much, Matt, for joining us, as I said, on your own podcast. <laughs> and next we'll be with Clive Highland to discuss the second book in the Happiness in Humans imprint, The Quantum Way. Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much.